Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. What have you seen in your data on the family structure driving weekend strong men, and let's call it weak and strong relationships with one's masculinity. What's really interesting is that we often frame girls as being the vulnerable gender, right? We often frame conversations around like protecting uh, our children, like protecting our girls. We're not protective of boys. And what we find in the data that, that I find really uh, important for, for us to talk about as a society is that in many ways, boys are actually more vulnerable than girls. When you look at, um, for example, certain areas that have less resources, you know, boys and girls are hurt by, you know, we, we see the data in the United States, how your, your zip code defines, you know, so many other things. But for boys, it is worse. And girls will be able to adapt and fare better in low uh, resource environments than, than, than boys are. So boys are, are actually really vulnerable. We need to be just as curious about the way that we can protect boys as we are interested in protecting girls. And, and by the way, when we protect boys, it protects girls. Because to your point, mo- most of the problems that women have yeah, are because of men. So it's like, let's just, you know, men are the first victims of patriarchy. Welcome back to Yang Speaks, the future of. This is your host, the future of, Zach Rauman. Thank you for taking the time to tune in. Today, we have an episode that I'm particularly passionate about. Today, we have Liz Plank on to talk about the future of masculinity, which is something different than the topics we've been talking about, but in my opinion, imperative to where we're going as a society. And specifically, what Liz talks about is how we reevaluate our relationship, both men and women, our relationship with masculinity, how we understand that. I'm particularly very, very excited about it, but a few things first where we dive in, a couple housekeeping things. Number one, the plan was to do a 12-week series, limited series on the future of, and I have good news based on the feedback I'm getting. We're gonna extend this, so the future of's not going anywhere. I know some of you are very worried. (laughs) We're gonna keep it going probably through the end of June. The plan is to the end of June, another few weeks, And then lots of exciting stuff coming down the pike for Yang Speak. So thank you all for tuning in. We will continue to deliver great content for you 
to listen to. Second thing is Monday, we're celebrating our 100th episode. We're doing a mailbag. Um, so if you go on Instagram even, but Twitter mainly, um, but either of those, I'm gonna check and Andrew will check and use the hashtag AskYangSpeaks, one word, hashtag AskYangSpeaks. Let us know your questions. We're gonna get to as many as we can. So those are our housekeeping items. And now I wanna set up this episode, Liz Plank, author, journalist, influencer, and a very, very hardcore feminist. For this episode in particular, my dad, um, I grew up, my dad was really involved in men's ministry um, with our church growing up. Um, so I'm extremely passionate about this. I'm extremely passionate about how you set up a society that creates strong men. And I grew up thinking gender and our relationship with masculinity was a simple thing. And the older I get, uh, the more I realize how complicated it is. And uh, particularly for men, how complicated our own relationships are with what it means to be a man. And Liz, where I've always respected Liz and agreed with Liz on is that she believes we need to focus more on men because strong men treat women well. And weak men harm women or don't appreciate it, don't respect them. And we need a society that creates and, and um, values strong men um, and values men encourages men to respect women. And that's what I'm excited about, how we do that, because I believe it's essential. I think Tom Brokaw said this at an event I once went to, said that the US has only tapped into half of their, half of the country's potential because it's been just led by men for, for decades and decades. So I'm excited where this future is going, but men have a role to play. We have a long way to go as a society and I'm excited and I was really excited to learn from Liz and talk to Liz about what this means. So tune in guys, this went on a ramble, but this episode is something I'm very passionate about. The future of masculinity, Liz Plank joins right now on Yank Speaks. All right, it is my joy right now to talk about the future of masculinity with someone I got to know on the presidential trail who comes at the same problem and so somewhat the same solution, but a completely different way. It's my like absolute honor to welcome now recurring guest on Yang Speaks, journalist, author, producer, influencer. What else are you? You're just a general badass. Liz Plank, like, welcome to Yang title. Speaks. Thank you welcome so much. Back. Am I a friend of the pod? Like, are we like, am I, is that? You're a friend of the pod now. I'm a friend. Oh my God, that's major. That's major. I can't, I, I feel honored that we made it this far. So when we met, you were, I had no idea who you were. You were kind of a big deal, but I didn't know. Like we did so many interviews, I had no clue. And then um, I remember like I posted online a photo of you and Andrew, like a quick video of you guys talking. And I had like three or four friends of mine be like, are you with Liz Plank right now? And I was like, <laughs> If that's Liz Plank, then I yeah, guess. I guess I am. Um, and now, so I've gotten to know you and you are very, very vocal um, and a very, very passionate feminist, but you hit it differently, almost controversially in some circles. And you focus on female empowerment. You focus on all of the things that a, a traditional quote unquote feminist is talking about, but you also focus on men and empowering like let's say the concept of weak men is what I'm passionate about. Like I think a lot of the problems that we're looking at in terms of what is hurting women the most, I think weak men are at the top of the list. And I'm very, very passionate about um, 
how societies can create weak men, how do we how do we get there? Um, so I want to dive into all of this, but let's start a little bit like uh, a bit because you've been in a lot of different types of production. Not everything you've done has been geared in this topic, but you found your way there. So tell me a little about your background and how you wrote this book for love of men, which is like a feminist take on how we need to like basically get men to be better at not being so weak. And um, so let's tell me a little about your background, how you got into this list. Yeah. So uh, my background is I thought I was going to I was enrolled for a master's in social work in, in Montreal. I, I thought that was, you know, going to be my my path. And then I woke up the morning of my of my program and I was like, I don't think this is what I meant to do. And so I ended up uh, day one. Moving- <laughs> on yes, and I canceled. I lost like a couple hundred bucks, but they did refund me. Uh, <laughs> and my mother was mortified. Uh, and and but I ended up doing a master's in policy work, right? So I, I really thought, uh, and and I was working with people di- with disabilities at the time at a community center and a and a, if you watch Crip Camp at a camp that's very similar to Crip Camp. Uh, and what I found really frustrating, just in general, also r- regarding women, but regarding all marginalized sort of communities, is that in my day-to-day job, I, you know, could do as much, there's only so much I could do as a community counselor, and, and I felt like as, as a social worker, so I wanted to go into policy to maybe work in government, or I don't even know, like, I literally just was like, okay, this makes sense. I started writing when I was doing my master's in London and I started this campaign around like female boxers and skirts and it's like a whole thing. And that's how I got my first article published. And then I just started writing and I was like, oh, wait a minute, uh, wow, media is a whole beast and I can really uh, write about things and not just have like a professor put it in his recycling bin at the end of the day, but like actually, you know, find my tribe and find people to talk about these things with and and actually impact change. So I uh, ended up and and I was, you know, really specializing in women's studies and and gender uh, particularly. And again, gender equals women in most of our brains when actually what started happening as I was, uh, you know, and I was a reporter at Vox, at Mike, um, that's how we came to know each other. Uh, I, I was reporting on, you know, politics and on on the campaign trail. And just, you know, I, I was just notice, noticing that it's great to talk about these things with women. And I would find myself in rooms filled with women and have having incredible conversations about freedom and liberty. But then I'd be like, wait a minute, like, no wonder we haven't really moved the needle in terms of gender equality and feminism, uh, I, I think enough, uh, if, if, if half of us are missing, right? And so as I started doing research, uh, for this book, <laughs> for the love of men, I, you know, first of all, we're I not talking. plugging at all. Not plugging at all. Time. I don't know. It's like I don't. I'm, <laughs> no, it's, it's good. Here. It's good. It's, it's hiding uh, all of the mess in my room. Let's <laughs> yeah. let's be honest. We might show. We might do a reveal at the end. We might do a reveal. <laughs> we will not. Um, so, <laughs> so two things happened. I start talking to men about feminism, and mm-hmm. um, and and talking to men about gender. And realizing, oh my God, there is so much happening with men in relationship with their gender, just like there is with women in their gender. Women have all kinds of stories, experiences, right? Uh, ideals, models that were pushed on them, uh, rethinking the way that they are as women in the world, right? W- women have been thinking about this for, you know, so long. And men 
I realized I was the first person to ask them, you know, what does it mean to be a man to you? Uh, is being a man different for you than it was for your father? Um, is there anything that you feel pressure to do or act and say? And and it was just so incredible. And then the second thing that happened is I did a lot of research and then I felt kind of betrayed by my own discipline where I was like, okay, I've spent so much money educating myself when it comes to gender and when it comes to gender equality. Why has, why didn't anyone tell me how much men benefit from all of this, right? Like we know it's beneficial to women, but like, holy crap, you know, men in feminist societies and gender equal societies live longer, right? Iceland is this perfect example of this feminist utopia. Just Google Iceland and women and you'll find all these different examples of why women are better off in a country like Iceland that has the highest level of gender equality. But then I started researching what, how are the men doing? And, you know, according to Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson, we would think that they would be doing horribly under a feminist dictatorship. And so I ended up going to Iceland and trying to save men from feminism and bring them back oh, to wow. America where they're safe. And none of them wanted oh, to come safe. to America, right? They were like, <laughs> I love my parental leave. I love my health care. I love having more sex and living longer, right? So um, there's so many positive impacts from feminism that we that we that really benefit everybody that we just we you know when we only talk about it in terms of women we're actually limiting the conversation so let me i'll get real a bit i'm this is something i'm very very passionate about because my dad probably should have been a youth pastor he was very involved in um particularly men's ministry at my church growing up and so i've seen the men's conferences and frankly my whole life have seen damaged men and sometimes their sons and how they pass that down um and what happens when they don't feel strong, when they don't feel like they have a purpose. And and then if you look at the numbers, um, who is causing the biggest problems to women? And to men, by the way. He's causing problems to other men as well. Oh, right? uh, yeah, right? sure, yes. And actually in your book, uh, you said, there's no greater threat to humankind than our current definition of masculinity, which I think is saying the same thing. So. Why is our current definition of masculinity a threat? And I will, I'll preface this by saying, I don't know how much I'm going to fundamentally agree with you. I'm really excited. I want to learn from you um, because I think your perspective is frankly what men need here. So what, yeah, what did you mean when you said that? Yeah, I mean, I guess my first question is also like, you know, how do we define weak men, right? And and I think in our society, how we define weak men is often the ones that are strong, right? So a man who... Uh, for example, yeah, is with a group of men and there's a sexist joke or there's a racist joke or whatever it is. And he's like, hey, that's like not cool. He's going to be like, OK, he's going to be called, the, you know, a pussy. He's going to be called whatever. Right. And he's going to be uh, seen as non-masculine when actually what takes bravery, what takes courage, what takes, uh, you know, being non-conventional is actually going against the grain of that sort of misogyny. So so I think that's like an interesting tension there. You're right. The premise of my weak men is actually should be up for debate or like that. That premise needs to change a bit. Well, but I think it's a it's it's a good framing. Right. So because too often and, and this is how I'm going to answer your question and, and also touch on that, which is 
If we look at vaccines, for example, and the COVID pandemic and who's getting vaccines and who's not getting vaccines, we have seen now research throughout the pandemic showing that men are you know, less likely to wear masks, they're less likely to wash their hands, they're less likely to social distance, they're less likely to be in support of you know, uh, states having lockdowns. God, we're uh, the worst. And, right? And rules. <laughs> and so... But what's really interesting is that there's recent data that I wrote about from a column on, on MSNBC, which actually makes a difference of like, but which men, right? Because it's not all men, hashtag, right? And I'm using this in a positive feminist way, not the way that it's you know often used to derail conversations around feminism, but it is in the study that they actually tried to make a difference between men and how they identify with their masculinity, right? That And so they asked men, do you identify as very masculine, somewhat masculine, not masculine at all, or like, do you not care? And this is the fascinating bit. I like, lit- like, this is one of the cool, I, I had like a, a, a like nerd orgasm, like when I read this, okay? <laughs> okay. What's so fascinating is that when we look at men who are hostile to the vaccine, men who are hostile, men who've been gathering with groups of more than 10 people, it's the men who identify as very or completely masculine. When you look at men who don't, they are acting, actually, you can't tell the difference between women, women and men. So it is not men's biological gender that determines their behavior. It is their relationship with their gender that determines their behavior and attitudes, right? And so to me, that's where it's that definition, right? Because we define masculinity in a certain way and men who ascribe to that cultural uh, definition, which is being pushed down their throats and being you know, rewarded in all kinds of ways in, in our cultural artifacts and our political system, right? The men who ascribe to that end up being a, not just a danger to other people, but a danger to themselves, right? They're, if you're not getting vaccinated, you're, or, you're, you're you know, not wearing a mask. I mean, not only are you, uh, is it disrespectful to other people, it's also putting you at risk. And this is not just one, this is one example. I, I cite many in the book about, you know, uh, from, from wearing a condom during sex, uh, men who are more, again, identify with these more masculine, prototypically masculine characteristics um, are less likely to practice safe sex. They're more likely to uh, not respect traffic lights, right? Like get into accidents. There's so many different ways that we see this play out. And so that's why I, I didn't say men are the greatest threat to our society. It's our definition of masculinity that's the greatest threat that we need to disrupt and encourage men to liberate themselves from. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get 
to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. That weakness, that lack of understanding that being a man is not just dominating a conversation or not looking at women as an op- women as an object, and that like sense of what it means to be a man is not. To me, it has to be taught, and it comes to me down to the relationship probably um, with the father, um, who was your model of masculinity and manhood as a child, and if you look at the numbers in the United States, we're half. I think it's half of marriages end up in divorce right now. And uh, it's 40% of, of kids are born to single parents, mostly single mothers, and they don't have a father figure or they, they, they always pick one and you never know what you're getting in that sense because you're a child and you're latching on. What have you seen in your data on the family structure driving weak and strong men? And let's call it weak and strong relationships with one's masculinity. It's incredibly impactful. Obviously, look, we're all (laughs) sort of little miniature versions of our childhood selves, just like playing adults, right? So our development in the first five years, especially, is is extremely hard to deprogram, right? So whatever attention or neglect or abuse, right, um, uh, you 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 experience at that time or or absence, right, will will impact you. And what's really interesting is that we often frame girls as being the vulnerable vulnerable gender, right? We often frame conversations around like protecting uh, our children, like protecting our girls, right? From abuse, from pregnancy or teen pregnancy, right? We're very protective of girls and we're not protective of boys. We actually often see that parents, um, and again, this is not, I think women and men do this, but I think men feel like it's their responsibility to discipline boys, right? And to make sure that they're not soft and that they're, you know, that they can protect, not be protected. And what we find in the data that, that I find really uh, important for, for us to talk about as a society is that in many ways, boys are actually more vulnerable than girls. When you look at, um, for example, certain areas that have less resources, where there's more poverty, right? Or, or in a school where there's literally, again, like a lower income neighborhood, or there's less uh, resources in their particular uh, educational opportunities. You know, boys and girls are hurt by, you know, we, we see the data and the United States, how your, your zip code defines, you know, so many other things. 
But for boys, it is worse. And girls will be able to adapt and fare better in low uh, resource environments than, than, than boys are. This is not to say that girls don't need uh, the same stuff, but but boys and, and one other piece of data that's I think really relevant and that relates to fatherhood is, you know, ma- the mass incarceration problem that we have in this country where, you know, black and brown fathers are n- literally not allowed to parent. 91% of parents who are in jail currently are fathers. So the mass incarceration conversation is a fatherhood conversation. And so what we also find is that, again, having a parent who's incarcerated is extremely impactful in negative in negative ways for children. Yeah. But again, we see it uh, we see it for girls, but it is worse when for boys in terms of their behavioral, um, you know, sort of changes in the way that they are will be less likely to finish school. So boys are are actually really vulnerable, and boys you need to be treated with the same level. We need to be just as curious about the way that we can protect boys as we are interested in protecting girls. And and by the way, when we protect boys, it protects girls because to your point. Most of the problems that women have, yeah, are because of men. So it's like, let's just, you know, men are the first victims of patriarchy. Like they're victimized by it and then they victimize women. And that's not a classic male thing to think we're the victim in some, I mean, no, you, you think you win in the system. But yeah. it's a it's a pyramid scheme. Like who wins? Like one <laughs> percent, and then the rest don't. They just constantly try and climb up the ladder, but they're not able to achieve any of the rewards. So one of the stats we would uh, Andrew and I would cite. It's in his book, um, The War on Home People, is the book. Um, but he would talk about um, what happens when men and women lose their jobs, and. So the job, and particularly in older generations, um, the job was not just your job. It was your livelihood, your purpose. You are the provider. You are the man. You are the breadwinner, whatever to finish. But there's some there's a lot of identity associated with it, particularly for men. And the, the numbers bear that out. When women lose their jobs, they generally stay, like their behavior doesn't really change. They stay productive. They either become more caretakers in the home or they join nonprofits or they get involved in school and, and they essentially stay flat in terms of their overall well-being and productivity. Men disintegrate. Men turn to, by the numbers, um, video games, alcohol, sometimes drugs and pornography. And or suicide. Become, yeah. Yes. I get, and then um, they, they get depressed and, and um, so very, very serious mental health issues and suicide. How have you seen that the element of strength play in? And I, and I really want to dive in because there's also emotional strength too, which I think women are based on what you're talking about, probably stronger emotionally than men. Um, so there's two different types of strength here. How much that responsibility kind of weighs in on people's relationship with their their gender, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting question. Feminism and gender equality actually acts as a buffer for male suicide. Okay, because what we find throughout history is exactly what you're saying. Uh, When there's economic crises, when a lot of people lose their jobs and particularly uh, COVID was the first actually extremely unequal recession in history where women were the most hurt. But if you look at 2008, for example, the last recession we had, men lost a lot of jobs, right? Um, women did too, but manufacturing jobs, right? Like when we think about the jobs that were that were really lost, um, a lot of men lost their jobs, right? And so what happens is normally you have an increase in male suicide, right? When you have uh, higher unemployment with men because of everything that you've said. But when you have 
a society where women actually contribute equally, right? That it's not just men are the breadwinner and women stay at home, that women are the breadwinner too. Male and female suicide rates are not as skewed. And that's because, you know, the thing you can infer from that, which the researcher who studied this inferred this, is, you know, yeah, when you put that all of that burden on one person and on one gender, and that, and it's also on something that you cannot control. I mean, the both of us could lose our jobs tomorrow, right? This is not something that's, you know, you earn, right? It's out of your control. But if, if, if the only thing that makes you a man is being a breadwinner and that that's no longer available to you, of course you're going to think that you're a burden. Of course you're going to think that you're, there's nothing good that you can do. You're going to have an, a, a crisis of identity. And that's what we're seeing men experience. And, and in, and again, it's like if we could degender working, if we could degender uh, breadwinning as as an identity, and uh, by doing that, give men more flexibility and possibility and imagination about how to be men in society and how to be useful or you know what their purpose can be, like then you have such an expansive opportunity, and and you have men who aren't as. Uh, you know, completely distraught and 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 destroyed if they lose their jobs, um, and so I I think so much about that about how um, it, you know these roles are made up. It, well, these roles are just like you know again we we can go back into capitalism and all that stuff, but like literally like these were just inventions like you know, women of color have always worked like like it wasn't a thing. Like it was just like a white working class model, right? Of the nuclear family that men yeah, work and women. Yeah, the Norman Rockwell painting, wherever it is, yeah. E- exactly. And so if we were to sort of just give people more flexibility when it comes to that, I, it would just make everyone, you know, much happier. Um, and, and I just, I get so sad, you know, to think that a man would feel like a burden because, you know, he's not able to, to provide and also providing, you know, women provide by doing all kinds of things, right? Like even if we think about prototypical, like a stay-at-home dad or mom is providing. Oh my God! Like that's providing oh, yeah. care. My mom was that's a providing. Mom, um, and she worked harder than my dad in many ways. Exactly. And, um, it's just added it's, more value it's to the community than yeah. my father did. And my, my dad, my, nothing against my dad. Um, my dad's ministry or, you know, the church's ministry that I grew up in or wherever he is. One of the things, like the most common things you've, you got all, we bring all these men together, which is great. And it would be called, my dad does one called Iron Sharpens Iron, which is a Bible verse. Like show Iron Sharpens Iron or One Man Sharpens Another, which I do think like brotherhood and sisterhood, I think are really important for, particularly for men to actually talk about this stuff. Um, but one of the things, like the most common thing we get at these, it's wild, is that, um, the men say their wives nag them. Um, does she's nagging me? She's telling me to take the trash out. Tell me I'm not doing this. And what my dad and the, the the conference would say to the guys, and I want your opinion on whether this is healthy or counter counterproductive to what we're talking about here, because this is where I think the devil's in the details and stuff. What they would say at the church would be, "Well, she's what is she nagging you to do?" Is what the question is. And she's like, "Well, she wants me to take the trash out. She wants me to make the bed." He's like, "Well." Um, if, are you the man of the house? Like, yes. He's like, well, whose job is it to make sure the house is looking good? He's like, it's my job. Like, yes. So like, what is she nagging you to do, bud? She's nagging you to do your job. And like, thank God she's there because it sounds like you wouldn't fucking do it. So 
my, and, and like for when we tell men this, we being like the, 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 the leaders of this, um, a light bulb goes off. Um, and to me, I always felt like it was shifting their definition of masculinity where I don't have to be like, yeah, rah, rah, you get that for me. R it's like, no, I'm actually here to help and support you and, and uh, some protection, some love, some like, but it like a responsibility piece. Thoughts on that? Like how off base is that church in Florida talking about that at the moment? No, I, I think that's wonderful. <laughs> and, and again, it's like, I think it's such a great way to frame this conversation, right? That again, I just want to degender shit. Like, I just want to degender, like, like, yeah, keeping your home clean. Like, it, that should just be something you do, period. Like, like not something that anyone has to, yeah, like ask you to do because their gender is right. And, and you find this with, um, LGBTQ couples, LGBT, L, LGBTQ couples are just have high levels, really higher levels of satisfaction in their relationships than straight couples. Cause and there's no norm. One, it's like, who fits? Well, that's the thing. what the man is supposed to do and it's two women. Yes. It's just like, <laughs> what do you like to do? And, you know, it's mm -hmm. our house. And how are we going to... There's just a more equitable separation of of work because there's not predetermined rules that are made up by who the fuck knows. And, um, and, and there's more freedom, right? It's all about freedom. Like, truly, it is about freedom. And, you know, with your example, the other thing I was just thinking about, which really, again, is such a... It's such a detriment to our society that we consistently um, are trained not to listen to women and not to believe women and to blame women. Like we blame women for everything. And it is so, again, I mean, there's examples of, you know, we blame women for their own sexual assault. Like it, it, we, we blame oh, women we for, right? Like not smiling it's, enough. Andrew we, talks we, about being dehuman, where you look, you don't look at women as, as equal. Exactly. As a human, it's a dehumanization. That needs to be taught. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think because biologically, if you just cavemen. I don't think that boys are like that, though. Like, I don't think that there's something natural. Again, it comes back to the research separating, you know, and I think we need more research that, that asks these nuanced questions that instead of seeing men as a monolith, you know, is interested in how they, you know, yeah, what they believe about masculinity and how that ends up determining a lot of different things. Like, like I think we, we assume certain biologic, we did this with women, right? We assumed women were just kinder and on their periods and more emotional. And it's like, these things are so wrong. Like emotional. Do you want to get, you want to talk about how like every war, like, like in history, like, and, and this is not yeah. to say again, that women are more Pacific, but, but we've, we've, create, you know, our, our society creates certain rules, certain norms, certain scripts, and then we follow them. And then it's like, I want people to, 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 to be interested in figuring out who they are authentically. Right. And maybe it means that, yeah, you're a go-getter and you are, you have more of an, an aggressive personality, right. In, in that way. And like, that's who you are. There are women who are like that. Like it's fine, but is that really who you are or are you playing a part? And, and when it comes to, again, just listening to women, that's the, you know, I think everyone wants something that like a marriage that doesn't end in divorce. Like I think no one's like in it to like divorce, but the number one uh, factor that leads to a lasting marriage, heterosexual marriage is a man that accepts his wife's influence. Okay. And this is from the Gottman Institute. They've done years and years of research on this. And it's very simple, right? It just means when she says something, you listen. When she says something, you 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 don't say no, you're wrong or oh, you're making things up like the way that we talked about women in our society.
This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. In teaching men to be an actual strong man, which actually requires them to be weaker in a lot of ways, weaker in terms of the traditional definition of masculinity, and women the same way, almost like to be a little more masculine in some ways in terms of being more assertive and more empowered and more confident. Can you go too far in one direction when you're trying to, like you're talking about like flipping the script and redefining all this stuff? So first of all, yeah, Chinese medicine, Chinese philosophy, the yin, the yin and the yang is literally like the feminine and the masculine, right? That yeah, you need- perfectly yoked. E equally yoked is the it, biblical it, version of that, yeah. Exactly. And it's all about, you know, how we all have feminine and masculine energy and, and, and things have masculine and feminine energy, right? There's like all kinds of, and, and, and we've accepted that for women. And again, it's more for, you know, we accepted more with white women with the more privileged you are, the more you can be like, you know, dress up like a man and no one cares. And it's not the same for, you know, different kinds of women. And, and again, you know, marginalization will play into that. Uh, but generally speaking, there's just a much more of an of an acceptance of women who that, that we accept that women can be masculine and feminine. I mean, we can wear pants, literally like no one, you know, but you can't wear a dress. If you show up and you wear a dress, it's like, oh my God, like Harry Styles on the cover of Vogue, like high heels were invented by men for men, right? Like I, they were invented for men. In, in 1600 Persia, like so that it, it was to get wow. on your horse and ride your horse more easily. They were like, oh, if we put heels. And so men wore high heels, right? Like all of these things, like even like if you look at you know, robes, right? And, and, and what, what did Jesus wore a dress, right? Like Jesus was able to wear a dress all day long, which exactly. is not sacrilegious folks. It's um, Who cares? reality. He also wasn't white. Don't forget that. Yeah, that too. Um, That's a big one. That combo. But men showing any kind of feminine energy is seen as taking away from their masculinity, right? It's seen as like, well, if you have feminine energy, then you can't be masculine. Whereas, whereas like women can wear pants and still be considered feminine. So, so it's about, you know, and that comes from misogyny, right? That comes comes from the feminine being the worst thing that a man can be because a woman is the worst thing that you can, you know, is, is, is at the lowest ranking position. And so if we celebrate femininity, if we celebrate women, then 
we wouldn't be as afraid of men showing characteristics of women. We'd be like, look up to women. Look how great they are. You can be like them, right? In the way that we do that with with girls, right? That they can be bosses and badasses and engineers and take on these masculine role, quote unquote, masculine roles and 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 sort of responsibilities. Um, we should be. We should if we didn't hate women. Right. If we didn't diminish the feminine, then it wouldn't be it would be fine for men to show it. Carly, a girlfriend, calls it the soft bigotry of low expectations, where I, I always see it. It's like it's like the silent killer where it's like no one in Wall Street is going on and be like, screw you, screw the women. Right. No one's saying that they're just silent. And I've realized, particularly in Wall Street, like looking back was like the young, ambitious, talented women that were coming in. And like, look, I've been there five, six years and they're right out of college. Like That's like the age gap. They would ask, like, hey, do you. Um, You've been a mentor to me, Zach, but also would like to find a, a, a female mentor here at the company, of course. And there weren't many to pick from. There was just a handful. And it was, I'm curious about this application in the workplace. And like, look, I, I think a number of women will leave to, to have children. And, and I, I love that. And I think we should have workplaces that are more flexible to um, not separate church and state. In that sense, they shouldn't be mutually exclusive. Um, but curious on like how this plays out in the real world right in your eyes because i've seen it and it's just like this it's un, like unspoken expectation that the women that do well here have to act like the dudes um, yeah. and that's the culture and again it comes back to you know because we devalue the feminine in order for women to be successful they have to be masculine right or they have to take on these masculine characteristics and erase their femininity um and and again it, it comes from this yeah, made up thing where like masculinity is better. And it's like, why? And women are so much better than men so many things. And we all know it. We don't have to pretend. Yeah. It's not like we have to dig up some studies that are ambiguous. It's oh obvious, right? And, yeah. Um, so. and, and, and workplaces are better when everyone's at the table. Like even if when we talk about, for example, I mean, we know having women in your boardroom, having women uh, ha having a seat at the table, it just means that you make better decisions. There's more creativity, there's a higher productivity and there's a higher bottom line. Line. But even if you look at, you know, disability, the fact that we totally uh, discriminate against people with disabilities uh, in our society means that they're just completely erased from from most workplaces and industries. But what we find is that there, you know, there was um, a Accenture study actually that found that workplaces that did take a commitment to include disability into their diversity uh, initiatives and programs had a higher bottom line. And there's I'm all sure. kinds of... Uh, yeah, it makes sense from a profit perspective. Like yes. more like different views, more diverse views, you can make that's better company. the thing. And you'll serve more people. Sense. Like a quarter of yeah. the population is disabled. If you have no people with disabilities in the room, like you, you there's shit you could sell to them. Like, you know, there's a capitalistic, obviously, you know, uh argument here. Yeah, but the pure asshole capitalist in me says you should probably have more women at the table. Yeah. Um, it's just like everyone wins. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I think, I think we, I think again, it's like, it's not about telling men to act more like women. It's not about telling women to act more like men. It's just like letting everyone be who the fuck they want to be. Right. And like letting everyone become, letting our children become who they are. And like, instead of this version, right, that they think that they're supposed to be. That's just the, you know, I think so much, we talk so much about the, the mispotential of women, right? And like, you know, what if the girl that could have come up with the cure for cancer, you know, had not got, you know, been pushed to, 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 to go into STEM. And I'm like, well, what if the boy who, you know, would be the, this incredible nurse that could, you know, heal all these people didn't go into nursing because his dad was like, that's not a real job for you. You have to do something else or, or teachers, right? Like, 
the impact on black boys in our country of just having a black male teacher, you know, and 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 it's only two percent of teachers are black are black men. So we're seeing, you know, coming back to education, it's so important and could have such huge ripple effects if everyone could just fulfill their potential as humans instead of as men or women. So. Gender, I've learned gender is complicated. And I grew up thinking, I grew up learning gender was simple, right? So this has been a learning journey for me, um, both myself, like understanding like, what well, like, I don't have to be that type of man, right? But also learning about a whole number of, um, frankly, others, other journeys. When a child is starting to identify as the, a gender that's different than their biological gender, right? Like starting to identify differently, as a parent, what, what's a good best practice in ter- terms of helping kids be themselves and like letting this education flourish in a new kind of world you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, that's a really, really important question, especially as we're seeing, um, you know, 2020 was the, the worst year with the most amount of anti-trans bills and ever. Children who are questioning their gender identity, the biggest threat to their lives is suicide. Okay, because they're already being told by everybody, right, that there's something wrong with them. And so and they're being excluded in all in in, in a wide variety of ways. And and it's the inner turmoil of having to figure that out is already humongous. Right. And we know that trans kids, more than half of them have thought about suicide. And I just don't know if people realize how harrowing that statistic is and we know that um the people who are are at the front lines of fighting these bills are saying they're getting calls from kids saying i'm going to kill myself so the most important thing for children and and one last bit of data is that actually you know so there's you know thing different things you can do before you're 18 and i understand these are children and you know we we have there are you know concerns about about making sure that they're okay but actually um it's called hormonal suppression therapy so it just means that we are suppressing their puberty it doesn't mean that we're changing anything it doesn't mean that we're right making permanent changes but just the fact of suppressing puberty uh reduces suicide ideation just across the board for these children so we know based on the data right that what actually makes these children's lives really hard is not the fact that they're uh, you know, trans or that they're gender non-binary. It is the way that society ha- is imposing uh, you know, certain rigidities or, or, or laws against them. And so the best thing that we can do, I think, as parents is try and protect our children, right? Um, and, and the rest of the world is going to eat them up, right? Like no matter, I mean, literally, like, I, I mean, I tell this to my parents and I'm, I'm, a cis, I'm cisgender, you know, when my parents are very critical, I'm like, you know, the whole world is going to find problems with this book. Like, I don't need you to tell me what's wrong with, with me. I actually need you to tell me what's right with me. And so that would be my advice for parents um, who are who are dealing with this. And obviously, I'm not an expert on this, but um, and, and there's so many amazing, you know, I'm thinking of uh, Chase Strangio and uh, Alok and and Thomas Page McBee, like, you know, trans voices who are really uh, like Raquel Willis, who are leading the charge with this and and I think are, are helping. But it, it's really about education, you know, and educating parents um, to understand that this is not the end of the world. <laughs> and, you know, this can be something that you figure out privately. And the government should certainly not have uh, any role in, in determining, you know, these very private and personal decisions for people. Correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like the future of this is how parents relate this and model this for their kids. Um, and if that's broken, we we're, every problem we solve, we're just going to have 10x more problems on the other side of this. I mean, I, I, what do you think? 
Yeah, yeah, and and the more we let bills like this go by and we don't stand up against them, then then parents do think that it's in their best interest to prevent, you know, protect their children by denying their gender identity, right? Like, like it, it just reminds me of like you know, again, coming back to disability, like the problem often is not the disability, it's the ableism, right? Like a person in a wheelchair is is uh, the barrier is not their wheelchair, it's the fact that like the Oscars, right? Until this year, didn't have a ramp. And it's like, just make better design, right? Let's build a better society instead of, confi- you know, confining our children to fit into it. Um, and, 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 and yeah, I also think, you know, for parents who are listening, even if you're cisgender, like if they're going to start l- pulling data on people's, on children's genitals, like, like they're going to come for you next. Like if we allow, this is a privacy issue. Like the fact that they're, you know, want to, you know, have all this surveillance of our private, of our literal private parts should scare everybody who cares about privacy. Hmm. Like that's weird. (laughs) Oh, very, very weird. I think what, what breaks my heart is like on these issues, when they get political, we have, yeah essentially billions of dollars of ads in messaging campaigns, dividing us on them, but putting people one way or other, when the root problem is like, we don't have a very good public education system in this country where like teachers are well-paid and happy and less stressed and can love their kids and and have the bandwidth to treat them all differently, right? Um, Like and individually, Uh, we don't have an infrastructure or like the the economy, like the, the things that are, actually probably driving some of this um these changes or, or negative behavior um like the root problems don't get addressed and then we focus on these let's call it quote unquote symptoms right of these culture wars and it's heartbreaking um that we have these conversations but i think frankly liz someone like you what you're doing to me is um is massively important i think um it's one of my passions in life is to figure out how we empower a new generation of men mm-hmm. to treat women well, to believe that, to not be insecure when they're kicking your ass at something, to say like, that's freaking awesome um, because I'm great at other things. And it does my manhood and my pride is not hurt or defined by the success of my wife or my sister or the women in my life. Um, and to still feel strong when women are strong. That is like, there's been this, like, if I'm, if I, if you're strong, then I have to be the weak one. I'm the, you know, um, and I hope, and I pray and I'm, I'm grateful for people like you just like, all it takes is, is just, we got to keep changing the conversation. Just keep yeah. talking about it. I'm so grateful um, when you come on. I, I, I honestly, like I could, I could talk about it three hours about this. Aww, I don't know. Me too. It's me so on. great to see you. And I loved your stories. I, I think it's, it's really useful to have my biggest fear is, is that this conversation stays in the bubble, right? And and um, I think it's really important to think about the language that we're using and how accessible it is. Um, that, that accessibility is is not just in terms of ramps, but even accessibility in terms of people who are different, you know, differently educated, differently, you know, who are in different jobs and different experiences and, and life perspectives. So I appreciate that. And I think the work you're doing is, is really important in creating that bridge. Thank you, thank you. For the love of men is on sale, but we'll put the link in our bio, guys. Um, and frankly, you can follow Liz Plank anywhere. TikTok, all those things, it's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for joining. Go keep kicking butt. Thank you, this is great.